0: Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Bryony Merritt.
1: And I'm Andrew Youngson.
0: Each month we're out and about in the college speaking to academics, students and members of staff.
1: This month we've been speaking to Dr Caroline Kamau about her study on the working conditions of junior doctors and their connection to patient mortality.
0: Mike Berlin about his forthcoming history study day on the Great Fire of London.
1: And the manager of Bloomsbury Farmers Market, Victoria Rymontate.
0: So, without further ado, here we
1: go. First up, is research focus. Junior doctors have had a high profile recently, with the announcement of their latest strikes and protests of their difficult working conditions dominating the headlines. It's a topic which has been at the forefront of one Birkbeck organisational psychologist's mind for some time. Dr Caroline Kamau, who is based within the School of Business, Economics and Informatics, has just published a study which has found that poor conditions for junior doctors working in the NHS are harmful to patients who need emergency surgery. Published this month in the Royal College of Surgeons of England's Bulletin, the study has discovered that organisational problems, such as poor levels of staffing within emergency contexts, and poor conditions for junior doctors working in A&E are contributing factors. Here, Dr. Kamau takes us through her findings and her recommendations for improving the situation. Okay, and thank you for joining us here, Caroline. Um, to jump straight in, can you tell us a little bit about the focus of your study and how you even began uh, the process? How did you arrive on the topic?
2: I'm quite interested in policy, and I was looking at the Royal College of Surgeons' sort of recent news just to have a sneak peek at what, what's going on, because that's what I usually do. And I noticed that they had this briefing telling us about the problems with emergency surgery. And what was quite interesting was that there's there's this really strong variation in whether you're likely to die if you're a patient after emergency surgery that I thought was far too big, Um, you know, from about 6.7% to about 42%. Yes, that's quite a bit. Now, from a probability perspective, this isn't random. I mean, it's not because, you know, more ill patients tend to go to one hospital, therefore they're all more likely to die. I mean, the reasons are organisational. So I thought, how can I investigate this? How can I find out a little bit about why we've got such variation?
1: Mm -hmm. Can you take us through some of the, the top line findings of your particular study?
2: Well, one of the interesting things, which I, I think is quite new, is the fact that the working conditions for junior doctors predict the experiences of patients. Now, this might not seem surprising, but actually, we didn't have evidence about this, not in the UK anyway.
1: Is that something that's more known elsewhere in the world? Are other countries better in this area?
2: Um, I think actually we're quite good in the NHS because we, we've got actually the largest health service in the world and employees in the NHS are actually much larger than in other countries so we know more about the health workforce but at the moment most of the research actually focuses on nurses. I see. Yeah and not doctors and I think that the experiences of junior doctors um, has, has really been neglected and I, I'll probably I'll you know, when, when I use the term junior doctors, I was just thinking of the fact that they're in excess of 50,000 of them. And and the term junior doctors is quite misleading, isn't it? Because it's you, you think of sort of, you know...
1: Very junior and, and with no levels of responsibility.
2: Absolutely. But it's completely different. I mean, some of them are actually registrars, um, which... Pretty senior, aren't they? Mm. Um, so I think the t- the term junior doctors is, is is quite misleading, but I use it when I talk about it. Although in my um, article I use the term new doctors after a certain point, because I think that it's important to relate to to what people understand when you're talking about new doctors.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. The, the word junior doctors itself is a very emotive term at the moment, what yeah. was um, strike after strike, some of the shocking statistics coming out uh, about the conditions, ties very very um, closely into what you're studying here. So what are the, uh, the real world implications of these conditions that you have studied from a psychological perspective, so from the organisational psychology perspective?
2: I think the first thing is that the NHS um, really has to stop thinking of junior doctors as junior doctors. I think that one of the positive things that will come out of this new junior doctors contract, though I have to say I'm quite critical of it, and I do support junior doctors who plan to go and strike but saying that one of the positive things about it is it recognizes the fact that junior doctors are leaders you know they lead teams they're responsible for patients getting well and and they will be held responsible if something goes wrong um by the general medical council so i think that there is this move away from seeing them as a sort of you know um as sort of junior people going around with, with a clipboard and, and actually people who are professionals um I think on the other on the other side, I think that junior doctors feel that they are not being listened to really um by the secretary of state and and this is I think the disconnect that there is a feeling that the n h s isn't really listening to doctors and and this is one of the problems it's that's, that's led to the strikes. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you just take me through a little bit uh, about the recommendations that the study makes because mm-hmm. um, they're very grounded, very accessible recommendations as far as me who, you know, I don't come from a, a scientific background um, and it all seems very, you know, brass tacks. The, 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 oh, yeah. the, can you take us through?
2: Well one of them is we need specialists in emergency surgery I mean at the moment there is a problem of recruitment into emergency medicine in the first place um, at the moment we have the vacancies being filled however fifty percent of registrar's in emergency medicine resign okay later on so 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 the they're filling the vacancies and then people are leaving the profession so the problem is still there and one of the problems with emergency medicine is it's just completely understaffed Um, not enough doctors with specialists in emergency surgery in particular And that's because it's not really recognized as a specialty in and of itself. So one of the things that I recommend is recognizing emergency surgery as a specialty in and of itself. Having people actually training, um, going on to be registrars and consultants in it. The second thing that I recommend is having junior doctors getting a lot more mentoring and training about situations where patients need emergency surgery because having delays in decision making is what causes problems and increases the chance of patient mortality. Um, Now of course it's absolutely understandable if you're working in an as a junior doctor you're under pressure You're responsible for a lot of patients maybe you're paging the consultant you can't get hold of them so without addressing the understaffing in other areas like consultants we can't really help junior doctors so the re- responsibility that I place isn't really on junior doctors it's on the system that doesn't train them adequately and supervise them adequately
1: and lastly what are the next steps for this uh work that you've been doing on and your your research in general what's next for you
2: well, I'm currently uh, supervising a PhD student who's done, uh, who's, who's doing a, a really big experiment with doctors. It's quite exciting. Yeah, she's been recruiting from all across the Royal Colleges, and she's interested in their occupational health. Um, and it's been it's been really interesting getting emails from doctors who say that you know this is something that they, you know they wish they'd been seeing before, that they wish that pe- people have been doing research like this. We always see research about occupational health of nurses, occupational health of other people in the NHS, but we never really see it with doctors. And I think it's because we've always put doctors on a, on a pedestal. Which is fair enough, but we've, we've, we've always forgotten that doctors are people too, that doctors are employees as well. I mean, they're entitled to the same sort of health and safety concerns as, as the rest of, of, of the workforce is. So we're hoping to understand a little bit more about an intervention that we're trialing. Um, and we've also been working on a big kind of study that has resulted in a, in a meta-analysis. Um, and so hopefully more of that to, to come in the future.
1: Fantastic, just something that uh, just came up when we were just talking there. Um, do you ever worry that the, the the topics that you study and the home truths that you deliver mm-hmm. um, does that ever put you in a difficult position with the people who you are studying in terms of your future relationship with them? Mm-hmm. Um, do, you know wh- Where does the role of a researcher fit, and how is that relationship? Is it an uncomfortable one with your subjects going forward?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, not really, because I do quantitative research whereby, you know, they're, re- they're literally a number on a, you know, on an SPSS spreadsheet, <laughs> not, not to reduce what a participant is. So, but I, I think people take part because, well, they feel anonymous, you know, we're using this program called Qualtrics now. So you're a doctor somewhere, you just click on the link and you, and you have this, this nice kind of couch of anonymity. Now, those who get in touch, it's because they want to make a comment, um, because they want to say, yes, I've taken part and this is what I think about it, which I think is lovely. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, no, there isn't really that d- sort of divide. Um, and I think that the it's been really interesting seeing my research sort of, um, you know, mentioned in NHS bulletins for staff and mm. staff being told, you know, why don't you read this? And And that's quite gratifying because you feel that, that, that what you're doing is, is relevant and you feel that what you're doing is, is having a, an impact in someone's working life.
1: It yeah, must, um, be, must be a big motivation you know, to know that you're part of a positive process of change.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that what's really interesting with um, working with practical sides of of psychology is, I mean, I've moved away from um, thinking of myself sort of armchair, theorist, and and gone out and and thought, well, what are the practical implications? Why is what I'm doing important? And and who who is it important to? So yeah, it's, it's quite a nice feeling to think that not only did someone read my article, but someone's using it to inform how they treat staff. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: That was organisational psychologist Dr Caroline Kamau. Next up, it's the calendar. On the 24th of September, Mike Boleyn, lecturer in Birkbeck's Department of History, Classics and Archaeology, is organising a study day in collaboration with the Museum of London. Attendees will hear from renowned historians from Birkbeck and the University of York and from the curator of the museum's Fire Fire exhibition about the impact of the fire on the lives of ordinary Londoners, the elusive history of the famous plans for rebuilding London after the fire and the role of anti-Catholic and other conspiracy theories in the post-fire period. Mike, the Great Fire has been in the news a lot recently of course but could you remind our listeners of some of the key facts about it?
3: Yes. The Great Fire occurred between the 3rd and the 6th of September, 1666. It destroyed about three-fifths of the City of London. And in total, it uh, affected over uh, 87 parish churches, 44 livery company halls, uh, the Guild Hall, the Royal Exchange, and very famously St. Paul's Cathedral were destroyed beyond repair. And it led to a period of rebuilding which affected the life of London uh, for the next 50 to 60 years. And certainly in terms of patterns of development and styles of architecture and some of the politics associated with the Great Fire, it, it affected London far longer than that. So it's a profound event in the history of London. It's sometimes seen as marking the transition between a medieval and a modern city. And it's those changes that we'd like to look at on the 24th of September.
0: So what was life like in the immediate aftermath after the fire for ordinary Londoners?
3: Utterly chaotic. Uh, Approximately 13,000 individual dwellings were destroyed and because of multiple occupancy and subdivision, really something like in a population of approximately 350,000 people, you can imagine Over 250,000 were made homeless, and they found themselves living um, for the next six months to a year, if not longer, in a series of makeshift encampments around London, in the open fields, in places such as Spittlefields, in Islington, uh, in Clerkenwell, and even further afield in London's outer villages and suburbs, down river from the Thames at places like Bethnal Green and and Bow and um, and so on found themselves living in tents and um, shanty towns and it really wasn't until um, really about a year later that London started to rebuild but it rebuilt it rebuilt in in fits and starts and uh, the proper rebuilding took as I said many decades so life in the aftermath of the fire was 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 chaotic um, the, the grounds of London, the actual physical fabric of London, was was um, still in ruins for a good decade after the fire, and and it was said that in the six months after the fire, the ground still was smouldering, basements uh, uh, still smouldering. The the the, the, the uh, in some places the land was still warm to the touch. So if you have to imagine it wasn't. It, there wasn't this immediate rebuilding. There was this period of, of total dislocation and then um, gradual uh, rebuilding.
0: So it would have been a long time before life began to take on any semblance of normality for for ordinary Londoners. And it's well known that the cramped layout of London's streets at the time was a contributing factor to the spread of the fire. Um, and today modern London skyline still reflects some of the decisions that were made during that long rebuilding period that you referred to so what were some of the proposals that were put forward during the rebuilding and what factors played into the decisions that were eventually made about how London would be structured Well,
3: One of the first official responses to the, the fire was to ask for a series of proposals for a planned rebuilding of London and the... Uh, plans which were produced by, very famously uh, amongst others, uh, Sir Christopher Wren, uh, the diarist and uh, member of the Royal Society, Sir John Evelyn, uh, the uh, fellow member of the Royal Society, uh, great polymath uh, Robert Hooke, and others, uh, was to produce effectively designs for a city that was to be laid out on elegant Baroque town planning lines with a series of radial streets the city subdivided into equidistant uh, quarters along the lines of, of parts of Paris at the time, round, round, point, round points, uh, uh, piazzas like the Piazza Covent Garden the word was used at the time and uh, these plans would have produced had they been uh, seen through a, a very different city to the one that eventually emerged. And one of the things we're going to be doing on the 24th is hearing from Mark Jenner at the University of York, who will be looking at those, the, the artefacts of the plans, because they themselves, although they're extremely familiar to anyone uh, who, who knows a little bit about the post-fire city, the very interesting plans, the actual detailed publication history and the status of those plans is not so well known.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the political and religious situation in London at the time of the fire and how that affected those decisions and, and the rebuilding period?
3: On the day, we'll be hearing from uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Vanessa uh, Harding, who who has made a, a, a great specialism of of uh, identifying the the impacts of the fire, and particularly in terms of the politics of the time. You have to remember, that fire occurs merely a few years after the restoration of Charles II. Uh, it ends the restoration of Charles II is often seen as ending twenty years of. Uh, Political experimentation of uh, first uh, the, the um, uh, 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 republic, commonwealth, and then the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell, and then his son. And um, to royalists, that that uh, that period of anarchy ends with the restoration. However, uh, it's important to remember that the regime of Charles II was not in 1666 by all means stable and by all means welcomed by all parts of London's population. London had been uh, a stronghold of parliamentary sentiment and also religious dissent and religious radicalism. So, um, prior to the Great Fire there had been um, various unsuccessful attempts at uprisings in the favour of what was called at the time the Good Old Cause, uh, it was very famously Venner's Rebellion in 1664, which was a rebellion by a a, 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 um, a a religious radical sect, the Fifth Monarchists, uh, who tried to over, overthrow Charles. Uh, there had been, of course, the, the, the um, uh, impact of the wars with the Netherlands, which had resulted in uh, uh, Danish ships sailing up the Medway and burning the English fleet. And, of course, also there had been the... Um, the Great Plague of the previous year of 1665, which had killed 80,000 people in as long in a summer. So the fire comes at a moment of profound political uncertainty, and it's a time of rumour, remembering that this is a society which has just undergone this huge profound religious and political upheaval of the Civil Wars and the Commonwealth. It's a time in which... Claims of divine intervention, belief in biblical prophecy, are, even in the era in which the Royal Society is beginning the scientific enlightenment, are very, very widely held. And so the year 1666, with its resonance uh, with the eschatological prophecy of the second book of Daniel, 666, the name of the beast, at the time, various different individuals identified the year, 1666, as having some kind of resonance in terms of uh, God's judgments. And it has to be said, curiously for a modern audience, that year had been identified long before the fire. You can go back to the Civil War period and hear of um, prophesiers such as uh, Mother Skipton of Yorkshire, Uh, who had had prophesied that London would be burnt down in the year 1666. Uh, There's the uh, parliamentarian astrologer William Lilly, who also made a prediction of London's downfall uh, in in the years long before the Great Fire. So the the fire occurs at a moment of, in terms of popular culture and 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 sense of, of the politics and religion of the time, of crisis. And it's perceived very much in those eschatological, um, biblical terms. It's seen as uh, by various different individuals as a form of divine judgment. Uh, and, and that's something that I'm going to be looking at, is, is how it played into um, one of the key features of uh, the politics of the Restoration, which was anti-Catholicism.
0: Brilliant, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for talking to us today. The study day takes place on the 24th of September and includes entry to the Fire Fire exhibition at the Museum of London. You can find out more and book a place at bbk.ac.uk forward slash greatfire.
1: Last up this edition of Birkbeck Voices, it's the Birkbeck People Slot. Every Thursday, Torrington Square comes alive with a thrum of culinary activity. Positioned right on the doorstep of Birkbeck, the Bloomsbury Farmers' Market attracts students, academics and members of the public to sample a huge variety of food, from organic burgers to freshly baked pizzas to sumptuous salads. Coordinating this weekly lunchtime bonanza is no small task, as its manager, Birkbeck student Victoria ryman can attest. Here, Victoria describes just what it takes to organise Bloomsbury Farmers' Market and how her degree in language teaching has helped her be a better manager.
4: Uh, my name is Victoria, and I'm a market manager at Bloomsbury Farmers Market. My job involves a lot of customer service. I I have a, I have two groups of people that I communicate with. Um, it is first of all it is farmers that come from all around the country, and it is customers. So this is uh, this is what I like most about my job that I'm always active and I have to use my language a lot. I have to speak to people, explain, sort out various situations. The market needs a manager for all these people, for the traders to serve them, to to sort out the problems when power disappears. So I have a list of um, specialists that I have to deal with in any, any sort of situation, starting from the managers and finishing with electricians. I started studying at Burbeck uh, earlier than running this farmers market. So uh, just that they had the program that I was looking for. The thing that studying linguistics uh, has taught me uh, how to communicate with people. and uh, so I get theory, I got theory in how to communicate with people in, at Burbeck. And then Bloomsbury Farmers Market is my, where I could use that theory in practice. People should come to Bloomsbury Farmers Market uh, due to the variety of stalls we have here. And uh, sometimes, obviously, it quite it can be quite complicated to choose. Just to think, oh, what do I want? Do I want a burger or do I want a pasta dish? But there's always, always all the traders there ready to satisfy you because uh, they do very good food here, very delicious food. And, and that's it.
0: And that concludes our latest edition of Birkbeck Voices. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button and tell all your friends. This is Andrew's last edition of the podcast as he's moving on to a new and exciting role somewhere else.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed my time at Birkbeck, so thank you for listening. And as ever, we love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so just drop us an email at communications at bbk.ac.uk. Bye Bye for for now. now.